Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. So glad you've joined us. You can always find us at goodlifetelevision.org, uh, where a, a number of you are finding us from all over the world. So we welcome you. Uh, you can also find us on all the social media platforms. And uh, we just, there's so many great guests uh, over the last couple of years that you really enjoy goodlifetelevision.org. And, and we have the long form interviews and we've, and we've broken them up into what we call power clips. So if you just want to see some of, the, some of the gold from those interviews, you can find it there at goodlifetelevision.org. This program is brought to you by the Turner Foundation, which you can find at theturnerfoundation.com. So welcome. I'm really excited about my guest today. Ryan O'Quinn is with me. Ryan, welcome. Thank you so much, Dean. Glad to be here. Uh, Ryan is an American film and television actor and producer. Um, he's president of Damascus Road Productions, which is an LA-based film and uh, television production company specializing in family content, which we're going to talk about. Um, he's also had memorable roles in uh, Third Rock from the Sun, Beverly Hills 90210, and so forth. Um, so he's he's certainly had a distinguished career in acting and producing, and so we're we're glad to have him. Thank where'd you. you where'd you start? Where, where'd you grow up? It all started. <laughs> where do we, how far in do we go? In the beginning. In the beginning. I grew up in a tiny little coal mining town in southwest Virginia. I have to say it slowly so I so it doesn't confuse southern West Virginia with southwest Virginia. So uh, near the Virginia-Tennessee border, a little tiny town called Grundy, Virginia. Very small uh, population. No, uh, needless to say, you know, I, I often half jokingly say Spielberg is not my surname and I had no, no inroads to the entertainment industry whatsoever. Had I wanted to be a coal miner or, uh, or an accountant like my mother, that would have been much easier. But I chose this weird profession wherein there was no, no precedent in my hometown for that. So from a, a tiny little coal mining town to undergrad at William & Mary in Virginia and then a brief stint uh, in the U.S. Senate in Washington, D.C. and then uh, on the West Coast for 26 years now. So you were you were like a staff. You were working in a staff in the United States Senate. I did. And, and yeah. then did, one day did you just say, "I want to be an actor. I'm going to Hollywood." Is this well, like my, the Fonzie story? I, from I Happy always Days? sort of. I always <laughs> uh, again sort of half jokingly say that my years of study have taught me that uh, theater and politics are the exact same thing. So <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's a great point. I think I think that's pretty uh, pretty accurate on a lot of fronts. But yeah, I, in order to appease both my parents uh, and myself, I double majored in college uh, in theater and government. So the plan was for me to go to law school. So I moved to Washington D.C. Uh, with the plans of going to Georgetown Law School and. Then I, I, I paused that and took a, a, a break in order to work in the U.S. Senate as a legislative staff assistant and was working on health care and the crime bill, both of which were huge issues in the mid-90s. And all the while, you know, the writing was on the wall because I was taking all of my vacation days and all my sick days and I was going to do stand-up and improv and sketch comedy and I had a, a talent agent in Richmond, Virginia and I was doing commercials. So pretty much anything there was to do in and around where I was, I was doing entertainment things. And so uh, finally, at, at one opportune moment, I, I broke it to the chief of staff that I'm moving to Hollywood. And I'll never forget, Dean, his, his, his posture. He, he put his, his big old cowboy boots up on the desk and he looked me down and up and he said, we'll be here when you get back. And I, I didn't know whether to smack him or kiss him. I didn't know if that was, he had zero confidence in me or I would always have a job. I didn't know what that meant. But that was 26 years ago and here we are. Wow. Yeah. And what was the first thing you did when you got to Hollywood? Uh, the first thing I did was enroll in an acting class, a graduate acting program, graduate level acting program in Beverly Hills. And then uh, I quickly started to figure out how to get an agent or a manager. Again, having no real 
idea how this business worked or, or what to do, I started doing showcases. And so I ended up getting a really great um, manager, a, a manager who, who eventually put me into a um, uh, got me an agent at William Morris. Uh, William Morris Endeavor along with CAA and ICM are the three biggest talent agencies in the world. Prior to the William Morris and Endeavor uh, merger, William Morris was you know, among the biggest agencies uh, even then and so my, I was repped by William Morris and I s slowly started getting acting roles and I was so blessed. I mean it was just, the Lord just, uh, it, in the grand scheme everything moved very quickly in the sense that uh, there's some staggering stacks out, stats out there about how long it takes an, an actor to uh, get a Screen Actors Guild card, for example. How, how much uh, of, a, of a grind it is before you can actually get into the union for professional actors. And praise the Lord, I did it in about six months, um, just quickly moving and, and, you know, one thing led to another to another. And so thankfully it was, it was fairly quick. And then I started doing small roles. I often say small roles in big movies and big roles in small movies shortly after that. Huh. Talk about your faith journey a little bit and kind of, I mean, not, not to, sure. uh, you're probably not the majority of the Hollywood crowd, yep. um, but certainly you're having an impact. But talk about your personal faith journey. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you were to ask me, uh, first of all, I should, I should say that at age 18 I, is when I accepted the Lord and made a, um, I often say a logical, sober, adult, rational decision to follow Jesus. Um, if you had asked me prior to that, if I were a Christian, uh, honestly, I would have said yes. And, and it would have probably been uh, for no other reason because I, uh, I wasn't Jewish, I wasn't Muslim, I lived in the South and my grandparents went to church and I'm American, therefore I must be. You and I now know that as a cultural, that, that's what we call a, a cultural Christian probably, just because we, we assume that because of our geography, we must tick that box, if nothing else. But the truth of the matter was I didn't know the Lord. And, and I really, um, uh, Henry Blackaby talks about when we, we're all faced with, a, with a, uh, coming to a crisis of belief. And I believe in our, in our faith journey that at some point we all have to make that decision. It's not the religion of our parents or our grandparents. We all have that decision to make personally. And when I was 18, um, my mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer and was given six months to live, several years prior to that. And, and for the first time in my life, I was thinking through uh, morality and mortality and all those, those big things that we all have to face at some point. And I really just honestly started asking those big questions. You know, God, if you're a real reveal yourself to me. And, and the big what if questions. What if I were not born where I was? What if, I, what if there were not a church on every corner where I lived? What would it look like? What if, I, what if I lived in Africa and had maybe never heard the name of Jesus? What would that mean to eternal salvation? So all of those big questions that I wrestled with as, as an 18 year old, the Lord just revealed himself to me and I, I made a decision at that time to, to follow him. And, uh, and uh, it's an understatement to say that changed everything. I mean, it really did. I, I, uh, as a freshman in college, I, I learned what, what most uh, believers probably learned by way of a flannel graph in Sunday school. I voraciously, for the first time, studied Moses and Noah and Adam and the, you know, the, the biggies and the, and the fathers of our faith for the first time and really just dived into it. That was my first year of, of undergrad. And my second year, I was a Bible study teacher for our, you know, for our, our campus ministry program. And so, uh, I was all in once it once it happened. Wow! And, and what has that been like in the world that you live in? And 
Los Angeles and Hollywood yeah. and these circles. Well, you're, you know, you're exactly right in that, um, in the words of my grandmother, when I, when I uh, talked to slash convinced her that I needed to move to LA, you know, when, when the question comes down, why are you moving to the den of iniquity? <laughs> that's, what, that's what most people think of, of Southern California uh, in general, no matter where you are in any, any other part of the country. So I, when I broke it down to her, I, I explained it this way. You know, I said, you know, that if there were anything else that I wanted to do, I would, I would need to go somewhere else. If I wanted to do Broadway, I would need to be in New York City. If I wanted to pick oranges, I would need to move to Florida. If I wanted to be a coal miner, I would have to move to Pennsylvania or West Virginia. But because of, of what I want to do, um, the majority of that happens in one tiny little crazy county uh, 3,000 miles away in Southern California. 95% of everything we see on television and in the movies originates, for better or worse, from that place. And so she and the rest of my family understood that. And, and I knew coming to L.A. that I, uh, you know, Hebrews talks about being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I knew full well that I was not going to stand on Hollywood Boulevard and pass out tracks with A-list celebrities. But what I did know, I had a really great mentor in my life and, and she said to me, uh, because I was toying uh, at the time, Dean, with the idea of vocational ministry, I knew there was some, some semblance of a, of a calling on my life in some way. I just didn't know how, what, that, what that would be and how that would manifest. And in, in, in my mind's eye, I thought if we worked for the Lord, that would mean some sort of vocational pastorate in some way. But she said to me something I'll never forget, and I think this is, this is a, a great mandate for any believer. And she said, the last thing we need is a half-hearted pastor. What we really do need is a great fill-in-the-blank. Yeah. And then she started listing truck driver, right. school teacher, right. banker, bus driver, actor, she threw into the mix. And I thought, you know, our mission field is our own backyard. Yeah no matter where we are. That's right. And I don't have to clock in or out at a church or stand behind the pulpit to proliferate the message of the gospel. In some cases, I may be standing in a green room with somebody who I've been doing shows with, you know, in a secular theater club for three or four years, and at some opportune moment, they may say, which is a true story, by the way, there's something different about you. What is that? And in that moment, I will have the opportunity to inject truth. And thankfully for you and me, our job is not to convert. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We just have to speak truth and he's gonna do what he's gonna do. So right. I've had fantastic. many of those opportunities in the last 26 years. Have you? Oh, sure, yeah. What a wonderful testimony. Do you know Kirk Cameron? I do, he's a, he's a neighbor, yeah. Is he? Yeah. Okay, because boy, you guys are a lot alike. Oh, well, <laughs> least, I take that as a compliment. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's phenomenal. Talk about Damascus Road Productions and what your vision is before we get to your newest project, which I want to get to in a second. Sure. But talk about kind of what your vision was for Damascus Road. Yeah, well, the name um, the name speaks volumes, of right. course. Uh, Damascus Road in name has existed for a number of years. Shortly after I moved to L.A., I, I uh, acquired the name through the state of California and went through all the legal channels to officially grab onto that name and at first it was it was a, a loan out company for my acting business it's not uncommon for actors to have a separate company uh, that's a loan out company that production companies pay to and then that company pays me so I I had had sat on that name for a number of years Damascus Road Productions and then uh, a film I was in uh, five years ago came out called Believe and Sony Pictures released it nationwide and and all of a sudden we were we found ourselves um, as a production entity, I was I was uh, literally and figuratively the the face of the production, certainly to the, the the powers that be at Sony, 
and you know was on the the poster around the country and all of a sudden my my production company needed to be uh, listed somewhere so uh, I converted what had already existed in name to a production company and then as you probably know in, in this business and any other one press release and in our industry a variety magazine article or a deadline.com article that you know tells the entertainment industry that you have a production or you're getting ready to release a movie then all bet every I often say every sycophant friend you've had since third grade all of a sudden has a script and we my wife and I who is way smarter than me uh, when you know and, and is uh, knows way way more about what and how to do things um, quickly said we need to have a brick-and-mortar facility I had access to an office at Sony Pictures that I rarely went to and uh, we, we I live in the the Calabasas section of, of um, LA County and we found an office in Westlake Village right on the Ventura County, LA County border and so we opened up a brick and mortar production company facility and uh, we literally hung our shingle out and it's been it's been pretty incredible to say the least you know I will have opportunity um, sometimes as short as an elevator ride and sometimes as long as an, an interview like this to explain the name to somebody mm -hmm. and sometimes I'll ha you know hand out that business card and I'll get a funny look, and, 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 and sometimes it's just a sentence, but at, at the very least, I get a chance just to talk just quickly about Paul's journey and what, what that really means. That's so. and, and the premise behind the name uh, sort of goes without saying, but our, our thought process at Damascus Road is we want, to, we want the, the projects that we produce and distribute to have a transformative quality, knowing full well that, you know, honoring that that tip of the hat from Saul to Paul there was a transformation obviously that happened and again our, our projects are, are we're sometimes loath to have a a, a call to action or a, um, a conversion moment in the movie but at the very least we want every one of our films to cause somebody to think mm -hmm. and we want people to ask that question what is what is out there and at the very least come to the realization that that there's something bigger than me mm -hmm. so hopefully transformation takes place in the process. That's fantastic. You've written these two books, <laughs> which I was fascinated <laughs> by. Well, and you've done, there's a, you've done a lot of different things, but with these YouTube videos and different <laughs> things, but, but the Parenting Rules and the Marriage Rules book. Parenting Rules became an Amazon number one bestseller in multiple categories. What, what was your thought process with these two books? Yeah, well, everything came from, my, from real life. And, and as I mentioned, I was on the road doing stand-up comedy for years. I was on the road for 10 years doing um, large platform, primarily church events. So, you know, big youth conferences, statewide denominational youth gatherings, uh, large contemporary Christian music festivals. I would be the MC and, and, and would be the constant, you know, the, the, between bands, for example. So I was in front of a lot of crowds and, and uh, was doing stand-up a lot of the time. So I, I started talking about my family and started uh, doing social media posts about crazy things that happened in my house. I have three kids. Uh, right now they're ages 9, 11, and 13. And you do the math, you know that at some point in, in our journey, I had three kids under five and our, and our household was just pure <laughs> chaos. Each of them are, are about 18 months apart, so Irish triplets, wow. you know, sort of. So I just started talking about uh, either from the stage or, or via Facebook or Instagram about my kids and they, that got popular and a publisher approached me and said, could you put that in Write book format? Down. And like any good actor slash liar, I said, sure, let me do that. <laughs> and so it was really a shock when, when, those, when those 
that the first book, you know, uh, was number one in a bunch of categories, including comedy and religion and religious comedy, which I didn't know was a category, <laughs> but right. parenting and a bunch of things. But um, that book did well, and then the publisher quickly wanted another book on marriage. And my wife will be the first to tell you that, that uh, I said, okay, I'll do that one too. And I, I sat down and I wrote about four paragraphs, and I was done. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> That's what I know about it. And she goes, no, you need another 17 chapters for these people. So this may be the first time I'm revealing this to the world. But truth be told, my wife was like, okay, let me write this book and we'll slap your name on it. But here's what we know about marriage rules. But Got it. That's Got how it. that happened. Got it. So parenting rules and marriage yeah. rules are two books. Ryan O'Quinn, you can, you can check those out. Um, that's phenomenal. And then the, the, the Frozen video. So how oh. many times, let me just ask you this question because I've got daughters and how many times do you think you've seen Frozen? Oh, my gosh. Well, I can recite the whole thing from top to bottom. <laughs> okay. So right. we're into the tens of thousands, I'm sure. I figured. Okay, I'm the same. Yeah. So when you did this YouTube, this video, Dad's response to Frozen yep. that went completely viral, you were tapping into the core oh, of yeah. men all over the world. Yeah. Like me. Absolutely. It, it was, again, from a place of truth. And, and I'll give you the, <laughs> the real story of the impetus behind that. We have a, a small group that... that that meets just a bunch of guys, a bunch of dudes that sit around my fire pit, you know, every every other week or so. And, and uh, more often than not, not unlike just a, a guy's group, we sit around and tell fish tales and, you know, golf lies and, and whatever. But eventually we'll get around to some, some real meaty stuff. And, and we honestly, all of us go to church together and we check in with each other and, you know, how's the wife and kids and let's let's really think through things and pray together. and. And again, you know, we're in the, the heart of the entertainment industry here. So uh, all the guys that are in my Bible study are in, you know, there's a writer, there's an actor, there's a, a director, producer. And so one of us said at some opportune moment, you know what would be funny, dot, dot, dot. And I feel like most great things happen when somebody exactly. says that sentence. You know what would be funny? So one of us said, you know what we should do? We should, we should rewrite the lyrics to one of those songs. And I was singing those songs out loud in the shower. Like I, <laughs> right, I just... Right. Kind of yes. wrote, you know, on repeat. That's just, right. you know, we were all, a few years ago, we all did the same thing. So we said, we should rewrite the lyrics to one of those songs and sing it from a dad's perspective. Because we are, con I'm in the minivan and, I'm, and I know every <laughs> single line that's happening of all this entire movie in this song. So there's no recipe for viral, by the way. As you probably know, you can't set out to make a viral video. Right. Viral just happens. And honestly, had you asked us, what is success or what do you guys want out of this? It would have been, uh, you know, sending it to a couple of buddies with the subject line, you got to see this. And probably 2,000 hits would have been amazing. It was Father's Day weekend. We shot it in a march in my neighborhood in, uh, in Calabasas. And <laughs> uh, we released it. We sat on it until Father's Day weekend. So we sat on it for about three or four months until June. And we released it on Father's Day weekend. And from Friday to Sunday, it received millions of hits. And on Monday morning, my very first call was from, from Fox and Friends, and they asked for the exclusive. And I'm like, who, who, what are you talking about? And I got a call from uh, an email from a publication in Manila, Philippines, who wanted an exclusive story from us. And oh it, 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 it really, just, I mean, the trajectory of what happened from there on, it led, to, it led to, honestly, that was the catalyst that led to the books, and it led to a pilot for a television sitcom on the same name. Jerry Mathers played my dad in the, in the pilot, and it was just crazy, just this viral video with a bunch of 
Yes. Crazy, silly, you know, crazy dads uh, that, <laughs> that, that so rearranged a Disney song. And we knew that we were onto something when Disney, when we got a call from Disney, uh, you know, sort of slapping our wrist and, and we were on their radar all of a sudden. <laughs> like oh, they, right. A cease and desist from Disney. <laughs> we didn't, I'm sorry, we didn't mean to take down the biggest entertainment company in the world. We're just being ridiculous in <laughs> our backyard. Mouse, that mouse has good lawyers. Oh boy. I, and more than out. I do, more, yeah. more lawyers than I did. So we said... Yes sir. yes, sir, and then yeah. uh, and then they they re-released it and promoted it. So <laughs> that's what. Wow. Happened. Okay. When this comes out, this when people are watching this, they're going to have the opportunity to see Paul's promise. I want to oh. talk about Paul's promise, and I just want to read this real quick. Set in the peak of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, Paul's promise is the inspiring true story of Paul Holderfield, a bigoted firefighter turned pastor who started one of the first integrated churches in the American South, and Paul breaks free of racism and alcoholism, and it's, from what I've read, a great story, but yeah. t tell us about Paul's Promise. It really is an incredible true story that my company had the opportunity to produce last year, and um, uh, the, the, it's, a, it's a true story, as I mentioned, that, that took place in the, uh, still taking place as we speak, there's a, um, a church in North Little Rock, Arkansas called Friendly Chapel. And uh, it was started by a man who, by his own admission, was bigoted, racist. Uh, in the um, in the mid 1960s, he was a firefighter for the North Little Rock um, Fire Department, and his mother uh, prayed for him fervently. And she, from the time he was a, a tiny little boy, she was would take the the whole family to church and would pray for him and would constantly say, "Paul, you need to you need to give your life to Jesus. He's got big plans for you." And Paul, was, you know, it just sort of Water off a duck's back, as we say in the South. It just didn't stick for whatever reason. His best friend when he was little, he was a son of a sharecropper, Paul was, and his best friend was black, and he had a great rapport with his best friend. And as both boys grew older, they, they went their separate ways. And, and again, by Paul's own admission, he just he was wrapped up in, a, in a, a racist culture in the South, wherein you know the height of the civil rights movement in the 60s, particularly in the South, black folks and white folks rarely were seen together and oftentimes it was contentious uh, when they were and uh, on his mother's deathbed and it's what you see in the movie is is kind of his life leading up to to Paul's own conversion but on his mother's deathbed basically he promised her that he would look into this Jesus thing like he he made a promise that he fulfilled to his mom and said you know okay for you I will I'll I'll give it a shot and in true Jesus fashion, there was a radical transformation. I mean, from, and it's based on a book, and in his own book he talks about uh, one day he was drunk, and the next day he never touched another drop of alcohol. He never touched another cigarette or cigar, and he, it was a complete 180. For most of us, there's some semblance of a, of a gradual transformation right. as we try to figure out this new life. But for Paul Holderfield, it was a 180. And um, among the things that he knew that he needed to, to make amends for in his life as a new follower of Jesus was to find his childhood best friend whom he had denied. Again, not unlike the, the, the Peter and Jesus story, um, there was a moment, we, we took a little creative license in the film when you see it, and we, we put it in a different setting. The true story is um, during the, uh, the Little Rock Nine, they often call the, the, the Little Rock incident or the Little Rock Nine during the, the desegregation of schools in Little Rock, um, Paul and his firefighter friends were attending um, a rally, attending the protests, and his childhood friend, his black friend who he had not seen in years, walked up to him and he was so excited to see Paul, his friend, 
at this, this rally, this protest, that he stuck his hand out to shake his hand and give him a big hug, and Paul stuck his hands in his back pocket and turned away and denied his best friend. And he said, that night I went home and cried myself to sleep, and I promised myself and the Lord and my wife that I would never let that happen again. When the Lord got hold of his life, he went back to the inner city of, of North Little Rock and started feeding people, started feeding kids and, and essentially just loving on people. He, he knew that there was a need there and he sort of by accident started a, started a de facto soup kitchen where he just wanted to do whatever he could. His, his friends and, his, and many of his contemporaries said, don't, don't go to that part of town. Surely you, I mean, you'll, you'll end up dead if you do. And he uh, defied the, the, you know, the recommendations and went down and, and started talking to people and loving on people and feeding people. And that evolved into a ministry, which evolved into a church. And he was the first to say, I'm not a, I'm not a pastor. I've never been to seminary. His, his wife would often say, you've never even read a book much, le book, much less write one, you know. So he started Friendly Chapel and he welcomed everybody. And it was very, as you know, very avant-garde in the late 1960s, especially in a, in a southern city to say everybody is welcome in this right. church and everybody is welcome on the platform. And if you love Jesus, you can preach from this platform. And so he reconnected with his childhood best friend and that church, Dean, still exists today. 50 plus years later, every member of his family are vocational pastors in, in some way in the church. His son, Paul Holderfield Jr. is the senior pastor of that church. He has a, another oh son who is, a, who is a worship leader and another son who's, in, um, uh, who's a youth leader there. And, that, and they have served millions and millions of meals uh, since the 1960s and it, the doors are wide open still today. Unbelievable. Yeah. Isn't it powerful what, the, what one person, right. the Lord, in your words, the Lord getting a hold of somebody. Yeah. What can happen? It really did. I mean, that's a great story. Paul's Promise, check it out. Um, and uh, I'm gonna check it out, that sounds fantastic. Thank you. Ryan, thanks for what you're doing and who you are, and it's great to meet you. Truly my pleasure, thank you so much. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next time.